I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we take the disconnected parts of scripture and discern the connecting theme that underlies them. Since the book of Numbers began, I've been saying that there are three major movements in the book of Numbers. Three distinct sections of the book that are each geared towards a particular aspect of the wilderness journey that Israel experienced as they moved from Mount Sinai to Shittim. A journey that did not go as planned and ended up taking a full 38 years longer than anyone expected. And as we have studied up to this point, we have gone through the first two sections. The first part encompassing chapters 1 through 10 as Israel prepared for moving. They counted and organized and primed themselves for movement into the land. And nestled among these instructions, some policies were set that were not popular among the people. The appointment of priests was changed from the firstborn to the Levites. Those who were to serve God was no longer based on a cross-section of all Israel, as those with the most honor in a family were appointed to this position. Instead, now everyone from a single tribe received the honor of being in service to the God of this nation. But there came a cost of this service, a cost that will be recounted once again this week. Those who served Hashem were not to get an earthly inheritance of land. They were cut off and scattered throughout the land. They expected honor of this position was dampened as those in service now had to rely on the rest of the nations simply to supply their needs. They had to take the step of faith that Hashem would continue to provide when no one else would, should it come to that. And as we considered these changes, we discovered that there was sown among the people at this point a seed of jealousy. That position was to be mine. That land was to be mine. Why can't we get both the honor of the position and the land associated with such an honor? Why can't our tribe gain a foothold in the priesthood and gain power and control over the nation? And it is to this seed that several chapters are devoted in the first section of the book. One dealing with jealousy of a husband toward a suspected adulterous wife. A metaphor, a symbol used throughout scripture to describe the relationship between Hashem and Israel. One towards creating a limited vow that could be taken where a person could experience the service to God for a time by sacrificing some of the things that would normally be theirs and be desirable. And one towards the concept of all of Israel being dedicated to this God, regardless of tribal affiliation, position, or honor. And in the end, we see that all Israel is to be led by the Spirit in intangible forms of cloud and fire as they travel the path that's laid before them. And it was the priests that were to declare to this people and get them in a position to move. The second movement of the book of Numbers began in chapter 11 and deals with the people as they begin to move. Their travels begin, and in this we find that the heart of the people is not ready to follow this God. They allow their lust and their desires to run rampant. They're not satisfied with the minimum of sustenance that God has bestowed on them miraculously. 
and they begin to speak against their leadership. Infighting begins because one of the leaders is not conforming to the societal expectations of what he should do. And the slandering spreads beyond the immediate circle of the leadership and spreads throughout the entire community, which is revealed just a few chapters later. And the people reveal the doubt that is nestled in their heart. The challenge and fearful prospect of the conquest finally bringing out what the people really feel about what they're being asked to do. And all of this comes to head in a rebellion. A cross-section seeking to overthrow the leadership and priesthood and to take up these roles that should have belonged to them in the first place. And in this rebellion, all of the previous sins come out full force and condemn those who were unfit to remain in Israel. And then the leadership of Israel is confirmed, once again through miraculous means. And then thirty-eight years pass. Thirty-eight years of boredom and death. Thirty-eight years of daily trust in Hashem to provide and learning to follow in this new society, this new way of leadership, this new nation being forged. And then suddenly Israel is tested once again, and they fail. And Moses fails. And Aaron fails. Everyone who remained of the previous generation failed in one way or another. And the ways of acting of the previous generation are then reenacted once again by the second generation. The doubt and desire and slandering of the leadership and the path that they had been put on did not pass away with their fathers. And despite all of this, despite Israel's own failures, Hashem protects them when the nations seek to weaken Israel. Hashem prevents the plans of cursing that was intended to be brought down on their heads. But Israel can still curse themselves. They can still bring curses down on their own head despite the protection that Hashem has placed upon them. And the only thing that can turn back this curse is repentance and the swift destruction of the sin that came into the midst of the camp. And with that, part two of Numbers ends and part three begins. And last week we began this third part of the book. Once again, it's counting and organization and matters that don't seem to bear a lot of weight for us today. But if we examine this third section, we'll find that many of the issues of the past are being dealt with once and for all. And among these issues of the past, we find that there are new matters that need to be addressed. Issues that are now at the forefront of conquest truly at hand. The people are ready. Hashem is ready, the land is ready, and yet there remain some last-minute things to be done. And this week, we encounter the first of them, inheritance. Numbers 26, 52 through the end of 27. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, The land is to be divided to these as an inheritance, according to the number of names. To the large one you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the small one you give a smaller inheritance. Each shall be given its inheritance according to their registered ones. But the land is divided by lot. They inherit according to the names of the tribes of their fathers. According to the lot, their inheritance is divided between the larger and the smaller. And these are the registered ones of the Levites according to their clans. Of Gershon, the clan of the Gershonites. Of Kahath, the clan of the Kahathites. Of Merari, the clan of the Merarites. These are the clans of the Levites, the clan of the Livnites, the clan of the Hebronites, the clan of the Machlites, the clan of the Mushlites, the clan of the Korachites, and Kehat brought forth Amram. And the name of Amram's wife was Yocheved, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Mitzrayim. And to Amram she bore Aharon and Moshe and their sister Miriam. 
And to Aaron were born Nadav and Avihu, Elazar and Itamar. And Nadav and Avihu died when they brought strange fire before Hashem. And their registered ones were twenty-three thousand, every male from a new moon old and above. For they were not registered among the other children of Israel, because there was no inheritance given to them among the children of Israel. These are the ones registered by Moshe and Elazar the priest, who registered the sons of Israel in the desert plains of Moab by the Jordan of Jericho. But among these there was not a man of those registered by Moshe and Aaron the priest when they registered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For Hashem had said to them, They shall certainly die in the wilderness, and not a man was left of them except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Jehoshua the son of Nun. Then came the daughters of Zolofchad, son of Hefer the son of Gilad, son of Machir the son of Manasseh from the clans of Manasseh, son of Yosef. And these were the names of his daughters. Machla, Noah, and Chogla, and Milka, and Sirza. And they stood before Moshe and before Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders of all the congregation by the doorway of the tent of appointment, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not in the company of those who were met together with against Hashem in the company of Korach, but he died in his own sins, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his clans, because he had no son? Give us a possession among the brothers of our father. Moshe then brought their case before Hashem, and Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You should certainly give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers, and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And speak to the children of Israel, saying, When a man dies and has no sons, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brother, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be to the children of Israel a law of justice, as Hashem commanded Moshe. And Hashem said to Moshe, Go up into the Mount Avaram, and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother was gathered, because you rebelled against my mouth in the wilderness of sin, in the strife of the congregation, to set me apart in the waters before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of sin. And Moshe spoke to Hashem, saying, Let Hashem, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who goes out before them and comes in before them, and who leads them out and brings them in, so that the congregation of Hashem be not like sheep without a shepherd. And Hashem said to Moshe, Take Yehoshua the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and you shall lay your hand on him, and shall set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and give him command before their eyes, and shall put some of your esteem upon him, so that all of the congregation of the children of Israel obey him. And he is to stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before Hashem. For him, by the right ruling of the Urim, at his word they shall go out, and at his word they come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. And Moshe did as Hashem commanded him, and took Yehoshua, and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and laid his hands on him, and commissioned him as Hashem commanded by the hand of Moshe. Nearly 500 years ago in the narrative of Israel, a promise was made to their forefather Abram. A promise that was given that if Abram would pick up and move and trust in Hashem, then the place where he moved would be given to his offspring as an inheritance. The promise was that Hashem would bring his children up from a land where they were being oppressed, and that he would bring them to and give them the land where Avram was only a sojourner. 
In Genesis 15, 13 through 21, And he said to Avram, Know for certain that your seed are to be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. But the nation whom they serve I am going to judge, and afterward let them come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you are to go to your fathers in peace. You are to be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the crookedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to be when the sun went down, and it was dark, that see, a smoking oven and a burning torch passed between those pieces. On the same day Hashem made a covenant with Avram, saying, I have given this land to your seed from the river of Mitzrayim to the great river, the river Euphrates, with the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Girgashite and the Yebusite. And despite the fact that everything that Avraham saw around him was contrary to this promise being fulfilled, Avraham believed the promise of Hashem, and his faith was counted as righteousness. And throughout the remainder of the life of Avraham, he struggled with just how this promise was to be fulfilled. At one point, he attempted to begin the process of fulfilling the promise through his own means and only ended up causing division and strife for future generations of his own people. And yet Hashem remained faithful and gave a sign that was not by human power that this would be accomplished, but by the power of Hashem alone would this thing be done. And the remainder of Genesis and Exodus tell the story of just how those remaining 400 years were spent. The struggles and challenges that the seed of Abraham faced as they walked out the history of the promise. And the walking out of this story led to no end of heartache. Deception of brothers for the rights of inheritance, fighting between wives for the honor of bearing the one who would inherit, fighting among brothers for the rights to inherit. And all of this infighting in the family of Israel led to one son being sold as a slave and exiled from the family. And over time, those who were in the land and expected to inherit, those who had struggled under their own power to gain for themselves what they saw as theirs, failed. Because the land where they were, the place that should have brought blessing, turned to a curse in their face. And the one who had been cursed and had been sent into slavery and prison found himself to be in the right place to receive the inheritance that the others struggled for. The place of power at the right hand of a powerful nation and making the decisions of life and death for all mankind. And it was through this series of events that Israel happened to be saved. And it was through this series of events on a longer timeline that Israel happened to be enslaved, as the actions that the brothers had taken towards Joseph were then visited upon their own offspring. And Israel was brought low and brought to the end of their own power, and all looked hopeless. Inheritance? Who had any thought of inheritance in this place? There was no honor to be found. There was no power to be found. There was no authority to be found among the children of Israel. The hope for the promised inheritance was so distant as to not even really matter to them anymore. And then a deliverer came, and the promise that was made so many centuries before began to be fulfilled. They were brought out of the land of their affliction. They were given great possessions and were enriched as they left. And they were being led to the place that had been promised. And now, now after 40 more years of waiting, Israel is on the cusp. 
Finally, the inheritance lies before them. It is theirs for the taking if they simply have the faith to take it. And so, as we begin to read chapter 26, we encounter the second census, the counting of the tribes of Israel for the purpose of war. And as we begin this partial, we discover something new in verse 53. The census was not simply for the purpose of knowing how many warriors there were in Israel. This was not simply a count of troop strength. This count, the census as it was taken at this point, was for the purpose of inheritance. The size of the land allotments that were to be given to Israel after they had taken the land of Canaan. And if we do some math on the conquest as it's recounted in the book of Joshua, we discover that the conquest of Canaan took nearly seven years to accomplish in full. Some people died in the conquest or for other reasons. Some boys matured in the fighting men during that time. The number of the people in each tribe, the ratios of the tribes, they likely changed during those years of warfare. But none of that mattered when it came to the inheritance. The inheritance was not set by who was left once the land was taken. The inheritance was set by who was left as they came out of the wilderness. And in this we find something of interest in my opinion. When you go through the wilderness experiences of your life and you experience that time of lack and miraculous sustenance, the reward that awaits you is not based on what you do as you take up the reward. Your reward is based on the fact that you simply made it through. You survived the trials, you survived the tribulations, you survived the testing, and you made it to the other side without losing your faith. And so your reward is set. And that reward is the same as everyone else. No one in Israel got more. One man did get to choose where he would settle, but he did not get more than anyone else. But everyone's reward was the same, the same amount of land. And in the gospel, we read of a parable that Yeshua tells that highlights this idea. Matthew 20, 1 through 16. For the kingdom of the heavens is like a man, a householder who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the workers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I shall give you. And they went. Having gone out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, having gone out, he found others standing idle and said to them, Why do you stand idle here all day? And they said to him, Because no one hired us. And he said to them, You too, go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you shall receive. And when evening came, the master of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. And when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but they too received a silver piece. And when they received it, they grumbled against the householder, saying, These last have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answering said to them, Friend, I do you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man as also to you. Is it not right for me to do what I wish with my own? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Thus the last shall be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
For Israel coming out of the wilderness, this meant that it didn't matter if a man were 59 years and 350 days old and had just missed being counted in the first census and had spent the majority of his life in the wilderness. Or if a man was 20 years and one day on the day of the second census and had not participated in any of the events up until the day that he was counted for the census. Every person in Israel, every warrior in Israel from the seasoned vet to the wet under the ears private received the same reward. And that reward of inheritance was wrapped up tightly in the tribe that this man belonged to, his family and his lineage. But the Levites, once again, we read that the Levites were not part of this allotment of tribal inheritance. There was no inheritance for the Levites among the children of Israel, verse 62 says. Levi, in their position of honor, in their elevation to the place of serving the Most High God, they were to find their inheritance in God alone. He was their inheritance. Now, a few chapters back, we found that this inheritance took the form of the tithes of the children of Israel. These tithes were given to Levi as their inheritance. And we'll soon read that added to this were 48 cities that were dispersed throughout the land on both sides of the Jordan. Something that we aren't going to spend a whole lot of time on today. And in this we find something interesting. Because the chapter ends by saying that there was not a man among those in the census who had been counted in the first census. And this is true. But we must remember that Levi was not counted among Israel. Not in the first census or in this census. Levi was always treated differently. And if we pay attention, we discover that Eleazar, the priest, was alive at the time of Israel coming out of Egypt, and that he was elevated to the priesthood in the book of Leviticus when the tabernacle was put into operation. And now he is the high priest during the conquest of the land. Levi was not held to the same standard. Their standard was higher. They were not given the same reward. Their reward was more ethereal, but they were not punished alongside the others either. Levi truly was disconnected from their brothers in Israel because they had been elevated to the place of servants of Hashem. And the phrase that Levi had no inheritance among the house of Israel causes us to stop and consider. But they do have an inheritance, though. They have an inheritance among the house of Hashem. He is their inheritance and their reward. And in this we discover that the blessing slash curse that was spoken over Levi by his father, Jacob, on his deathbed, is fulfilled. Genesis 49, 5-7 Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their weapons are implements of violence. Let my being not enter their counsel. Let my honor not be united to their assembly. Because they killed a man in their displeasure, and they lamed an ox in pleasure. Cursed be their displeasure, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Because of this choosing of Levi to serve as the priest of Israel, Levi is scattered among Israel, and Levi is divided from Simeon. Now the tribe of Simeon experiences this curse when their tribal allotment falls in a place that is surrounded entirely by the tribe of Judah. Their only border on all sides is Judah. And so over time, Simeon ceases to be a uniquely identifiable tribe as they're absorbed into Judah and they take on the identity of Judah. It's a curse equivalent to having one's name blotted out. 
and this outcome with Simeon is something that we will find further highlighted in a listing of a tribes in an upcoming chapter of Deuteronomy, as Simeon is left out of the list completely. But again, that's not a topic for today. So regardless, as this topic of inheritance is recounted, we find once again the fact that the tribe of Levi was not part of the inheritance, and the tribe of Levi was not part of the punishment. Moving on to chapters 27, we find that the topic remains the same. Inheritance is still the matter under discussion. This time it's a matter of what to do in the case of a family in which there are no sons to inherit. Now in the ancient Near East, men were in charge. They were the leaders. They had rights. Women did not have rights and could not own land. Women were often considered to be nothing more than valuable property. Right or wrong, this was simply the way that it was in the ancient Near East. And so for a family to not have a son in the ancient Near East was the equivalent of a family not having any children when it came to what would happen to the family name. The name of the man without children was cut off as if his line had failed. And so these women, they recognized that this society is not being arranged as other societies around them were. They have seen that they have been given rights in this law that's being instituted. They're being protected in a way that's not happening in the nations around them. And they recognize that the fact that their father had only daughters did not necessarily need to mean a complete end to his line and his inheritance divvied up among his brothers. He was not cursed as a barren man was seen as cursed, cut off for all time with his name and heritage wiped out. He had children. And in this new society, women were being treated as valuable and worthy in their own right, not simply worthy through the family that they were connected to. So they take the opportunity to come before Moses and to ask a question. Now we see here what's likely one of those cases that was brought to a local judge and then was decided by the lower court, as it were, to be too difficult to judge. And so it's kicked up the line until it reached the supreme court of Moses and Hashem. And for a man in Moses' position and in the time that Moses lived, this was indeed a difficult matter. And so Moses takes the time to consult with Hashem as to the solution. And the solution is one that, again, was countercultural in the ancient Near East. Once again, Hashem puts forth a judgment that is compassionate and fair and does not punish a man for no fault of his own. And Hashem does something that would have seemed preposterous. The daughters of Zelophehad are given an inheritance among their family. Their father's portion becomes theirs in his name. Women were given rights of inheritance alongside men when there were no men to inherit. Women were being shown honor alongside their brothers. They too could indeed hold land in their father's name. We don't read it here, but there is a caveat to how this is implemented. But since this story is repeated once more before we end the book of Numbers, we're going to hold off on discussing that caveat today. And so it is that other matters of inheritance are explored in the text. If a man dies with no sons and only daughters, then the daughters can indeed inherit in his name. If a man dies without children, then just as in the case of Leverite marriage, as his wife passes to his brother for her to have sons in his name, his land allotment passes to his brother as well, presumably to be given to the son that would be produced by the Leverite marriage. If he has no brothers, then the inheritance goes to his uncles, and if he has no uncles, 
then you're to find his closest relative to receive the inheritance. The inheritance of the land is to stay as close to the familial source of the man to whom it initially belonged. It's not to go to another family, and it should never go to another nation. And then, as chapter 27 closes, one final matter of inheritance is addressed. The inheritance of the leadership of Israel. You see, as was stated before to Moses, he was not to enter the land of inheritance. Moses, after everything that he had seen and done, failed to sanctify Hashem before the people of the second generation when commanded to do so, and instead he took that sanctity unto himself. Because of this, and because of the mythology that had likely been built up around Moses as a powerful man and a worker of miracles, and because Moses accepted this notoriety as his own at one point when Hashem had specifically told him to make sure the people knew that it was him that was accomplishing the feat, Moses lost his opportunity to enter the land of Canaan. The people had to know that it was Hashem at their head, and not Moses who was bringing them into the land. He failed in this charge before, and in so doing, had proven himself unworthy of leading them into the land. And so Moses makes a plea to Hashem. Appoint a man to lead Israel so that they're not like sheep without a shepherd. He recognizes that if Israel were to attempt the conquest without a unified leadership, then they would fracture into tribal and family groups that would soon be at war with each other and not unified against the inhabitants of Canaan. Now, the only reason that I can make this claim as to what would have happened without leadership is because this is exactly what happens in the time of the judges when Israel went without a central unified leadership. They fractured and warred with each other and became the prey and pawns of other nations. And so the leadership of Israel had to pass to another. Someone had to be appointed who would lead Israel into battle and conquest. And so Hashem confirms to Moses a choice that seemed obvious to us, but at the time was not so obvious. Take Joshua, your servant, the man who's been by your side, the man who has sat in my presence alongside you, the man who has seen and heard it all from the beginning of the deliverance. The Spirit rests on him, and you are to take him and set him before the priests and all of the people and lay your hands on him and appoint him to be your successor. Joshua will inherit the role of leader in Israel. Again, this decision is countercultural. We just saw earlier in this chapter that inheritance is a matter that is to be familial. A father should pass on what he has to his son. Culturally speaking, Gershom should inherit the position of leadership. This is how the world works. This is how kings operate. The son, the princes, they inherit the throne of their father. But Hashem is not a God who upholds cultural norms. When a cultural norm works against a person or family or is contrary to justice and wisdom, then the cultural norm is to be discarded. Joshua should not have inherited. He was not the son of Moses. He was a servant. But Joshua was the one who had seen and done and been there through it all. Joshua is the one who had served, who had dedicated his life to helping Moses with what needed to be done. He was the obvious choice to replace Moses, and he, in matters of faith, the one who had been there and done it, is a better option than any kind of familial connection. One could say that Joshua was the seed of Moses in spirit. 
just as all who are of the faith of Messiah are seed of Abraham, regardless of ancestry. And so Joshua was commissioned and appointed before all the people, and a dual full leadership was created. Eleazar to be the high priest and to inquire of Hashem through the Urim and Tumim, the church, and Joshua to be the leader of all matters of warfare and organization and judgment, the state. And these two were to work together in conjunction with each other, both seeking God's will and following God's plan, not in opposition to each other, not seeking self-promotion, not seeking to supplant the other, both knowing their place, both knowing their God, and both seeking the welfare of the people. And this right here is so very contrary to modern ideals of governance. It's not contrary to ancient Near East culture, but it's contrary to modern culture. Hashem truly is a God who does not care about culture and societal norms at any point in history. His way is above our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And just as at the beginning of the book we encountered a number of policies that would not have seemed popular, here too at the end we encounter more policies that would likely not have been extremely popular. At the beginning, these judgments became stepping stones to rebellion. Here at the end, however, the people seem to accept the ruling. Yet another indicator that the second generation has indeed changed from the first. Now, there are a couple of deeper principles at play in this chapter that I would like to examine. First off is the idea of inheritance as it's told of in the New Testament. In the Gospels, we encounter a few instances of the idea of inheritance, but all of those are found in parables, or in Jesus weighing in on disputes of inheritance. In the book of Acts, however, we find two times when Paul speaks of inheritance in new and interesting way. The first time is in Paul's final address to the congregation in Ephesus as he sails away in chapter 20. Acts 20, verse 32. And now, brothers, I commit you to God and to the word of his favor, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those having been sanctified. Build you up and give you an inheritance among the sanctified. Where did Paul get this idea that God was building up his people in order to give them an inheritance? Well, we have to turn to a later chapter in Acts to a point where Paul is describing an earlier event in Acts. Okay, In Acts 26, Paul recounts his encounter with Yeshua on the road to Damascus to King Agrippa as he was being taken to Rome. Acts 26, 14-18 And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Shaul, Shaul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the prods. And I said, Who are you, Master? He said, I am Yeshua, whom you persecute. But rise up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and a witness, both of what you saw and of those which I shall reveal to you, delivering you from the people and the nations to whom I now send you, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and the authority of Satan to God, in order for them to receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. An inheritance through sanctification, through faith in Yeshua. And it's from this initial charge that Paul gets this idea that the people of God are awaiting an inheritance from God. 
We are in a wilderness of sorts as a humanity, and we are awaiting the day when Israel will be taken from the world and led into their inheritance. And throughout his letters, Paul brings up this idea of inheritance and each of us being heirs that await the kingdom. Romans, Galatians, Colossians, Titus, each of these books mentions this idea to some small degree. But there's one letter that Paul wrote that expounds on this idea of inheritance more than any other, and that is Ephesians. In the opening chapter of Ephesians, this idea of inheritance is brought to bear full force. Interestingly enough, it's the same church that Paul addressed in Acts 20, the first time that we read of inheritance used in this way in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, 3-14 Blessed be the God and Father of our Master Yeshua the Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Messiah, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be sanctified and blameless before him in love, having previously ordained us to adoption as sons through Yeshua the Messiah to himself, according to the good pleasure of his desire, to the praise of the honor of his favor with which he has favored us in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespass according to the richness of his favor, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, having made known to us the secret of his desire according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in him, to administer at the completion of time, to gather together in one all in Messiah, both which are in the heavens and which are on earth in him, in whom also we did obtain an inheritance, being previously ordained, according to the purpose of him working all matters according to the counsel of his desire, for us to be the praise of his honor, those having first trusted in Messiah, in whom you also, having heard the word of the truth, the good news of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the pledge of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. All of that was a single sentence. But in it we read that this inheritance that awaits us is one that is being given to us because God has chosen to adopt us as sons to himself. Through the faith in Messiah we become family, and as family we are destined for an inheritance. And when we believe, we receive the first pledge of that inheritance, a down payment of sorts on the inheritance that awaits us. And the book continues heavily with the themes as it continues. We as believers in the Messiah, we have an inheritance to look forward to, an inheritance that comes through God bringing us into his family and drawing us near to him. We catch a glimpse of this at the end of the chapter, Joshua the servant. Joshua became the heir of the authority of Moses. Joshua, who was not family to Moses, inherited the position of Moses, the son of faith, the son of spirit. And that is how this works even now. Heirs to the promise, heirs of the authority, heirs of the resurrection, each and every person who is of the faith of Messiah is adopted into the family of Messiah and is made an heir according to the promise. And we have received a down payment on that promise. We have been gifted the Holy Spirit and new creation has been accomplished in our innermost being. This being a sign of what is to come. Inheritance of the promise for Israel 
It was a land. It was a land of bounty and blessing. But for us, it's a kingdom. A kingdom of life everlasting. A better promise. A better inheritance. And that inheritance is ours. It's an inheritance for those who remain on the path of life. So seek life. Deresh Chai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.